Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thank you for tuning in to our 25 Years of VTM podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook, YouTube, and Patreon as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsvtm.com. With that, enjoy the show. Hey folks, welcome back. We are 25 Years Masquerade Podcast, as you've heard. We've had a... Some success with intros, uh, and lately I'd like to say, and that they seem to be a little different, uh, if folks have noticed. If not, um, they are a little different. Uh, not, not that you need, not that you need to, to, to address that. Just saying, we've made some changes. That's all. Um, in a goofy mood today. For me, it's a little late. For those of you who don't know, I'm on Sweden time these days when I when I do the recording. So uh, it's a little later for me. Brain's not as coffee oriented to fire on all cylinders this late. Um, however, American time. Good afternoon to a lot of you. Um, that said, follow the Camarilla, folks, is what we're getting to. I could spit it out right there. Um, super excited to get to this. I know that we uh, left our Requiem fans, us included, uh, just after we did the uh, the Roman book itself. And uh, fantastic book. How do you follow that up? Well, what they did was they followed up with the whole entire Chronicle in one, which is what this is. I consider this to be a masterpiece for the simple fact of ease it allows anybody who want like if you're new to requiem at all and you're not certain where to go where to begin how to start and you just have a like a naked bare bones troop it is so easy for whoever volunteers to be the st to just hand them this book just hand it to them Mm -hmm. tell them to read and i really do feel that this book they could pick up and read page to page follow along as they got time and slowly make this what they what they want it to be uh which is running a game uh, for a group of people. The, the instruction here is so good. I would have loved to have had this book when I started out. I think it would have made a lot of things super simple to grasp. For one, we know they do the history on Rome, and there's tons of stuff to do uh, to educate yourself on what Rome was like back in the time period and, and all that. And they got dates that they pull on, facts that they adjust and a lot skew and make story to and make this super simple. The other thing to get out the way before we tell you, I mean, no less true than uh, the previous book than in this one, uh, but the artwork is just amazing. Um, my, my grade for artwork, some might consider low, others might think it's too high, and, you know, basically to me, it's just like, well, art is about perception, and everyone has a valid opinion when they see the same work of art, because it's yours. And in this regard, this book starts off with a picture of a, of a Roman woman who has a knife planted in her back, and she's clearly undead. And why I enjoy that so much, it's taking something beautiful, wounding it, and seeing the savagery that's captured all in one thing, which to me is metaphorically speaking of what it's like in that era from what the authors were trying to portray, what this night society was, and uh, and where it begins in that regard. Um, with that... We got a stellar table of contents that it includes in here that obviously walks you through, duh, the book. Um, but off mm-hmm. the bat, it talks about this prologue, the story that kind of sets this up. Um, what did you guys think of the prologue they had here with this whole "quote unquote" hunting a Roman elder? It was uh, definitely kind of kind of weird at first, right? Because it, um, well, the the story is set in the modern 
right? That's that's not what I was expecting when I first started reading this, and it was it was very confusing because uh, the the person that everyone is talking about isn't uh, isn't introduced themselves up until like almost the end, but it's everyone talking about him, and there's this palpable sense of dread. The only thing people really say about him is like he's awake, and we're going to go get him. <laughs> And through these, like, uh, people's eyes, they tell a very uh, gritty revenge tale of this uh, apparent elder who was a bishop of the Lankea at one point, right? Until he slaughtered his entire congregation. And it, it really just, like, drew me into it because, like, all right, I, I'm, I'm buying this. Why is all this happening, right? There's all this mystery around it. And then it switches to uh, the people that are trying to find him to protect him because it turns out he killed his congregation because the Lankea was going to wipe out a circle of the crone cult. And that's, and that's the thing is, is when I read that same story, he didn't give a reason. No, he doesn't. And what's also crazy, so to kind of add on to it, so Brennan kind of set it up from a perspective of like when he read the book. I'm going to tell you right now, like the first time I read this story was actually through the Strix Anthologies, and I read this as a standalone. And when I read it in its own context, I, I ra actually ran a chronicle based off of that elder because I was like, that is so cool to have an elder that old. And looking at it in this book, I was like, huh, so this is where it was originally written from. And then when I was first reading it, I was like, this seems a little bit out of place considering it's the fall of the Camarilla. In context, when, when we finish going through this book, you'll see why this story is just that much more impactful. Because you don't need... You're right, Bob. Like, he doesn't give a reason as to why he slaughtered it. In fact, it's just... It's an elder being an elder. But the, the crazier part about it is, what do people find important about the past? You know, are the Lankea crew that are coming after him valid? Or is that... Are they even crone crew? I'm not even sure, because they could just be a subsect cult of augurs. Right, who just might be coming after him. What's more important to them is what information they could draw from this elder. So he's just a commodity as far as they see it. Um, but that drew my attention. So my, my initial thoughts were like, yeah, this is out of place. Why would they? And I, as I read the book, I was like, I see. I see where this is coming from. They did, they did some important stuff in here, right? The First and foremost, they were kind of bragging. They were showcasing, and I like the way the authors did this. They were showcasing what Augury is. Because you're right. They mm -hmm. do use mm -hmm. Augury in here, right? With the crow. They pluck out a crow's heart. And uh, everyone's fascinated that this, this elder they have with them can do it. And uh, the assumption is elder. Definitely the eldest of the group that's there. Because he's bringing, like, his chilled, if I remember right. And they're just, just coming mm -hmm. along. Their point is to come to this elder, uh, Roman, and help him get his thoughts back. Bring his diary to him. Help him understand the modern era and kind of reconcile what's going on with them. On the flip, you have the sanctified that knew this guy as their bishop. He was their bishop. He came forth and talked about it, handled business, did everything else. And then when conflict arose, he just snapped. Now, what's important, as they're going to hunt him, there's a guy who tells him a crazy story, right? An anecdote. Typically, this happens. We're going to hunt an elder. We don't know what's going on. But as we're going through, he mentions the fact, he says, oh, yeah, uh, there's this guy I know who's like the sire or the child of a child who tells a story about how there's this elder who sent them all out to get a van full of, of, of animals and bring it back to him so he could feed. Mm -hmm. However, what they didn't know and they couldn't know, and what, apparently what that elder didn't know, was that this wouldn't be enough to satiate his, his hunger. And so when the guy comes back and he gets to eat the animals and it's not enough, he decides to eat the people who went and did it to get him and then he was full. And he was like, isn't that fucked up? That's what crazy, you know, elders are insane. It's crazy. 
And I sat there and said, this tells me everything about Requiem that I felt was on purpose. Now, often I keep it close to my chest. I wait until I'll hear, like, like Vampire, when you heard me do the reviews for that, a lot of that stuff was after I had read every book that came out. Because I followed it step by step. Mm-hmm. And I definitely had opinions. But it wasn't until I went back and read to review instead of reading as an ST or a player using the book. that Because that was the first time. You're a player in ST. You're mm-hmm. mining for gold, I feel. I'm going to use it and then ignore whatever that I don't like and keep going on. When you review, right. you note the, the oddities, the connections, and the cool things. Then you really be... It's like wine tasting. It's either you're trying wine for the first time mm. or you're just going to down and it sucks and whatever. And then someone comes by and goes, wait a second. Let it taste it a little bit. Let it breathe a tad. Enjoy the nuance that they put it together. See if you can taste where it comes from. They give you a card to let you know where the wine was bottled. Do you know the history of the place it started? And then that's why pe- people are endorsing an idea once you take in everything that was intended. And that's what reviewing is. So looking at this as intended, this story, when you read it, could be just over and out. You're going to read it and think it doesn't do anything. When in reality, it's wetting your whistle for the entire book to come. And this guy's anecdotal story does just that. It serves as foreshadowing for the story itself. And what it's pointing out, this guy, Renaltus, this elder, this Roman, there's a third uh, person here that they mention that is his retainer that served him loyally and is freaking out because he's going to get killed. Now, why he's freaking out is because when he was the bishop, this is the Roman we referred to, Renaltus, as he believes he might be called, Renaltus... Mm-hmm. Well, he was sanctified, super religious, God is everything, we're here to torment man on behalf because we're the lance and blah, 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 and keep him in line, torment the sinner, whatever, punish the wicked. And okay, so he finds himself a mortal that's equally religious, and he brings this guy into the fold, and he has him care for him, whatever. But when he snaps and goes and loses himself as they're trying to say he did, everyone's making assumptions. Well, the first thing the school did was steal his diary. His torpor diary stole it on behalf of the sanctified who wanted to know who was the guy that killed their people. Because the part of it is that it didn't kill everyone, but there it was a survivor, I think. And, or, or I might have misread. It might have been everyone, but these are the people who came afterward to investigate and know the bishop was to blame, and they call him traitor. And if rightly so, you kill my covenant mm-hmm. and you were heading it, you heard the traitor. They don't know. Well, however, he starts telling them in his diary this guy believes he was a Roman soldier. Or he was a member of something and he doesn't really know. So that's number one. We know the Roman soldier, the Legio Sanctumer, what have you, is one of the wings from the Camarilla back in the day in Rome. All right, cool. He doesn't know that. He's just a mortal in the modern. And as, as it goes on, he goes and he's talking to some master he refers to as Senex. We Again, another wing and we know what that is. Now, they're just like serving as a reminder that if you read the first book, right, this book is just, this story is just giving you a callback to it. And uh, it's sort of like a memory check. And as he goes through it, you get an idea of how it's presented, how crazy it is that you have someone who can talk to Rome uh, or about it. However, when you think of a Torpor diary, um, you got to understand, we referred to this before, three times before, in fact, if I'm right. On one hand, Brennan, myself, and even DJ waxed a little bit on why you would keep around a Torpor diary. You have elders who go to Torpor to remember who they were right to themselves. And mm-hmm. this diary, when they wake up, they can read who they were, jog that memory, and resume what they did. And the machinations that can come with stealing and and, and falsifying and all that stuff of that diary. However, the focus of this guy's retelling of a different elder, what you have to remember is there's a lot of context that isn't there. First off, 
there's a great chance that the uh, that elder willingly sent his people out uh, to capture a source of feeding. Surely it knew that the animals wouldn't satiate its thirst. Of course it knew. If I if I'm starving and there's only a certain type, if I'm starving and vegan, I'm not sending you out to b- grab a bucket of chicken and come back and give it to me. Just not going to work. And if indeed I'm your master, whatever I sent you out to get, you're going to bring back. So we got to assume two things. Either it was a punishment they got sent out to do, and he was testing them, and they failed for some reason and came back, and then he killed him. But that's not that's something it's going to look like to anybody else who was there, right, sitting to the side. All they know is he came back and ate this whole van of blood, and then ate the people who he sent. That's mm-hmm. all you know. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, he's crazy because he did that. We don't know. Now, the other thing we do know about being an elder is that who can stop you? I don't think anybody ever does this. And for a moment, I want everybody to entertain this fact. If you have absolute power, you're omnipotent in your group. Nobody who answers to you can possibly stop you. That's number one. Number two, you haven't met your equal. Not anywhere in all of eternity you've been around still. And you've been around about a thousand years. No one. You're the oldest, right? In terms of this immortality. How would you see the law? The only law is your law. The only perception is your perception. Mm. It's not an echo chamber when you make what reality is to whoever's around you. Therefore, it's great that people have opinions, but the peanut gallery to keep them nice and sweet, whatever they got to say, because otherwise death is on the line. And that's the, that's the effect we have here. It doesn't take that into account. Instead, what it says, it's a very youthful response to go, this elder got to go because he's crazy. Let's get him. That's what mm-hmm. they're saying. Because the irony is, is that this idiot's in a group that's going to hunt an elder, knowing that this already happened before. One of his good buddies survived something just like this. And the elder they went after was nowhere near the age of the guy they're going after now. And everyone's telling him to shut up, eyes forward, we do this for the lance. And that's more or less what the story does. Why I enjoy this is because they have a picture of the elder they're going after. And hats off to the artist, I already said that. But this is the second award-winning mark to me. This picture in Requiem's amazing for this. It's the eyes that do it. It's the feral capture, the glint in the eyes of a true monster wearing flesh. This is something that just doesn't care that you're anything but food. It's all you ever would be to it. There's, and it's an it. This isn't a person they drew. The guy's naked. And by word description, um, just as he is, he's leaning back on this chair that has become an accursed object in his ghoul's mind. This is the chair where any woman the school has brought back to his master, the woman dies naked, lying in this couch in some various fashion. And to Renaltus, as he's in the, the story, as he's talking in the scene about it, this woman he knows is still alive. She's barely clinging to life, but will expire soon, as he puts it. Mm-hmm. He has worn her out, as he said. And uh, she's beautiful enough to be his child, and he would do that if she wouldn't betray him and come to hunt him, just like he knows the others are already here. This is what's amazing. This guy is so powerful that the people who are coming for him, he's well aware of it. He has no bodyguards. He has no need for them. And there's two sides, as far as he's concerned, coming for them, and he's just... It's ennui, is what Renaltus is describing. His memories faded or what have you. The truth of the matter is, is that eternity is a curse because it's cyclical. You're around long enough, Hmm. everything repeats. That's between the cracks reading that they do all in Requiem that they're trying to scream at the players. 
that you're only playing maybe a century-old vampire. Your game's only going to last a handful of months, right? Until an ST gets tired and, and most of us never get back to the game. If it's going to be a true chronicle, you might play one that goes through the ages. And that's what it's telling you about this book. This book is stories that will go through the ages. You will pass through time. And they're trying to give you an idea of different perspectives in this introductory story of what that looks like. You have your youthful, uh, which are like the, the crone who's coming to him that are trying to support him. He's a relic. He's a living history of things that have transpired. We need this guy. On the flip, you have the sanctified. We have to put this monster down because look what he did. We have to stop him. We're the only ones with the power to do it because we know this ancient spell. And it's also talking about, well, who taught him that ancient spell? Where did that come from? How do they know that they have it and why? Well, you would have to know that the Lance is, is founded at the fall. The, the, this book is literally where the Lance is founded, and that's why their power is potent enough to do what it does. However, I won't ruin it other than to say, remember the foreshadowed story that I mentioned here, because it's amazing to see it. Because what I did was, is when I see a picture like that described in a story I'm reading, I went ahead and screenshot and put it as a background because I do PDF. So I did it as a background and split the screen. So as I'm reading the story, I'm always referring back to this guy. Because to me, picture speaks a thousand words. Remember, this this guy's manipulative. He he doesn't know how not to manipulate. And he just screams and drips with all the tools an elder would use to cultivate drama. Or as he referred to, I think he himself referred to the to them gathering together, the dramaturgy is just beginning. Right. Right. He does. Uh -huh. the, he does. The sorcery of entertainment that he's made for himself. And what's interesting, this comes with the backdrop of being shot with special bullets that for the first time in eons, it seems, I didn't say eons, but that's a little Cthulhu reference for you, but like the millennia he's been around, yeah. the, 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 the wads of lead or whatever that are sitting in him, they burn. They actually really hurt. And all he can do is lay there in the thought of it. Ah, pain for the first time in how long? Ah, I remember when my sire used to torment me and it felt like this. Or did I? Or was that me? I do believe that it was me who tormented us. It's been so long. And you sit there and go, I do not want to be anywhere near this guy in any capacity. I don't want to deliver his pizza. I don't want to know that he's the... Yeah. Nothing. I want nothing from him. Because you only have... It's hell. It's hell. It's literally a, It's what a requiem is. Right? By description as to what they've described it to this game so far. And it's done beautifully. But I myself kind of hated the way the story was put together. I agree with you there. It's I had confusion in my head as well. As good as the content is, it took me a um, better part of an hour and a half to go through there and figure out why I enjoyed the story so much. To piece I together. Same. I felt the same because another thing about it is, and I'll mention this in the book and I figure I'll mention it now, is the way he treats the, the females he feeds from, right? He only goes so far because they will mention in the book and all as a spoiler because it doesn't make sense and it all comes together. When you're feeding back in Rome, there there is that honor that still exists. You might tear someone apart, their head might come, you might break a bone here and there, but once you're done feeding, that's it. You don't toy around with the body. You pay its due respect. So that little nuance mm -hmm. that was shown is like once he's done feeding from her and she's gasping her last breath and he's done with her, let that statue and or that creature die and take its last breaths, but you leave it alone. He's not going to desecrate the body any further than what a currently is. It, he's done what he's had to do, and then the rest. I'm pretty sure at one point, you know, those 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 vessels that he fed from will get 
their proper burial by his mind's view. But that's what I thought, you know, like in retrospect, after reading this book and you read this story, you could start putting together where the author had kind of put those little Easter eggs all together, yeah. right? That's what I meant to say. That's how I felt about it afterwards. In the beginning, you're like, why? Why? But when you when you take a look at it after the book, it all makes sense because all the Easter eggs come into play. And to me, that anecdote is so clutch. And that's just the beginning, right? I feel mm-hmm. that that rolls into the, the introduction. What's your whistle? And it's enough of a hook to get you to see that, okay, this book is a modern book. And no, it's not. Um, <clears throat> the this, te- this talks about the fall of the Camarilla. It's basically a vampire play you're picking up. And in this play... Everyone gets to play a role, and you agree to it, right? They're going to be players, and then there's going to be an ST. It's that simple. And there is a cast of NPCs in this book, too. And just to, just to get to the juicier mm-hmm. bits, because I, I read ahead in the notes, and some people have some, some wordage about that. want to make sure we can get to it in this hour here. Uh, but the um, point is, is that it's a, a multi-part uh, do-it-yourself, right? A DIY vampire chronicle that if you want to be an ST, this is the book to get, as we've already said. However know what it's about right it's a simple thing to know that this book talks about a hundred year period before the fall of the Camarilla officially right that's where it kind of begins and the players are put there to enjoy the Camarilla at quote-unquote its height what it is to be there and to be at the beginning and kind of get entrenched in what's going on however it's not just that they want to know the weaknesses of the, of the structure as well where they get to play it at its strengths and get them hooked up and set up and established all that fun stuff they want to also show where it's weakest at and what the problems are there uh, within the backdrop of it you know being Rome itself um, once that's done the players kind of enjoy the benefits of it then it's the full part of showcasing the slow decline into chaos uh, and then it's inevitable ruin but there's also aftermath in this book as well and uh, that's they mm-hmm. tell you that up front, that this is what's entailed within, and that's the point. But they highlight that motive and consequence is what they don't give you. Now, what that means is the players are going to do what they're going to do no matter what. You can say, we're going to start here in this chapter, and this cast of NPCs are going to do X, Y, and Z. That's great. Your players might decide to go off in the woods and go hunting. They- <laughs> right? Like, we start in Rome. Hey, we're going to go to Sicily. What? Why? All right. <laughs> so you still have to do a session zero with your troop. You don't want to make the mistake of getting this book and then inviting your beer and pretzels friends to come play this game. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. You want people that mm-hmm. are going to take this seriously enough to actually understand where it's fun and it's going to be a blast. And you don't need an edu- uh, a super historical education to play this game. You do need to come understanding the moods of it. You know, the theme and mood here is about uh, decadence, uh, a descent into darkness as it's set. And when I ever hear about, see that theme, those are their words they use, descent in the darkness. It's a lot more than it starts off on a good note and then it gets darker as it goes. It is that too, but it's also of a personal rotting, right? A morality that turns. It's, you may have been somebody to resist temptation, but as I'm fan, I'm, I'm a fan of saying this, I can resist anything but temptation itself, right? It's mm-hmm. a fact. I think it's an Oscar Wilde quote. It's absolutely great true. It's at least it's been my experience in my life, and you know, and I found the two types of liars in the world, right? And uh, I'll, I'll leave <laughs> that there. Yeah. So um, that's that's how it goes. And this book kind of uh, it's the epitome of it when you say descent in the darkness. You say that uh, you know you say Brennan's upright, great guy. Glad to know. Awesome. How about I make him an immortal and see what he does in his hometown? 
And I bet if we can keep that GoPro action cam and that TV show rolling on it, we could just peer in and see what happens. I wonder what happens the fifth time he's killed someone and it's only been a month. Right? Mm. We know what the beast is. We've talked about it. We know what that dark descent is on its own. But now let's take him out of the modern. Let's put him in Rome. Would it be as bad? I I make this... When there's when there's much less like uh, what is it oversight in it where people can just go disappeared in the largest city in the world at this point, it, it, yeah. I mean, how many? Um, God, the uh, one of the opening. I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit because it ties into this. One of the opening scenes for this game describes uh, a party at like the Baths of Caracalla, right? And the first thing the the players are likely to see there is this woman completely naked and covered in blood. Only she's not a blood doll. She's the hostess of the party. This happens on like a nightly basis where people literally bathe in blood in Rome. And no, no one turns an eye to them. No one notices any people missing. No one's investigating all these people gone because you can literally buy people. So when you have this much, like, uh availability for all these indulgences it just spirals down well, quickly. we also have to remember that perspective is easy to get when written only from the vampiric side mm-hmm. is to say that simply not true the the baths of caracalla have a day life as well and the roman emperor is still mm-hmm. the emperor right that's the thing to remember um Tyrannus Rex, or whatever you want to call it, the tyrant is the tyrant. And what this means is, is that Rome is to be feared, as it is to be respected. And so it's what the humans would consider inappropriate that matter. That's the added point I want to attach there with what you just said. It's not that you'd be overlooked, it's that you would be noticed to not participate. That's what it is. Oh, she's not to your liking. Alright, why is there blood in a bath? Well, why not? Right? Have you stepped in? You want to use a you want to use a normal <laughs> bath? You certainly can go down the hall where the slaves bathe. But why? Why would you even care? About, hey, uh, a DJ, he cares about the blood in a bath. It would, you know, for DJ to stop as he's having I don't know probably his third catamite that evening. You know, saying like, why would you stop? You know, what do what I mean by that? And he's naked and humping another guy um, after trying two other women, and is thinking about sampling the fourteen-year-old Nubian who just came in. And as he's debating on that, while he's in the middle of having sex, and probably didn't have the slave stop, he's to turn over and go, it's only blood, relax, Brennan. That's mm. the point you have to hit home mm-hmm. and get used to this, because otherwise it, it loses its effect, right? The, the, the ST has to paint this backdrop. And so Descent in the Darkness means you sat with your players first and told them the theme will be Descent in the Darkness. Let's discuss that. And you get down what's acceptable and what's not, what's going to be in a game and what's not, if this game is right for that said player. You kind of got to play gate guard. This isn't written for somebody to come in and, and make everything very genteel and push to the side. Although I will tell you, you can do that. It is possible for you to get this book in every part that's dark and decadent and what have you. Um, you can tell a story from the uh, perspective of the Christians. They're being persecuted. They're trying to make this work and look at Rome and how it is savage and messed up and decadent and evil and filled with sin. And then that becomes its own story because you can use this story to know what's going on. And it's even easier for the ST to write what the Christians must be going through, where they're at, and of course, the sanctified that are there with them, right? Remember that. Mm-hmm. It's duality. It's whatever is happening in the mortal world, there is a vampiric equivalent to your chronicle, but it still has to fall on that theme, descent in the darkness. For even for the Christians, 
We must understand. Right. They start off being persecuted, but we know that once they get to the top, power corrupts and they persecute everyone that's not them. As if they forgot mm-hmm. what happened to them. And it's completely hypocritical. Uh, but that's sort of the nature of the beast of power. And that's where it is. Now, about that, there's a mood to have that's called fatal inevitability that they list in this book, too. Requires a bit of description. They do very good with these descriptions, but even so, I had to... I put my spin on it just for you to get it different. Because to me, fatal inevitability means that what you're not going to get this understanding. It's not fatal as in you're going to die. It's fatal that it comes to an end. You can clearly see... it's You're in its beginning and you can clearly see how this goes. How this is going to end for everyone. And you feel the weight of it once you're in it. It's the equivalent of if I suddenly became Elon Musk rich and I'm up there and I have that and I no longer have to worry about the burdens of wealth. Well, I'm going to hand that gift out to the people closest to me. Why not? But I'm going to consider that philanthropy, right? And once I feel better cleaning the board for several of my friends, I know I have just bought followers. First and foremost, I'll tell you, there's no way you don't think that. If I turn around to you, Brennan and DJ, and tell you I've just bought your houses, you don't have to work anymore. You work for me. Just let me know what you need. And we're now jet setting. We're taking jets where we got to go. Mm-hmm. Grab your wife, grab your kids, whatever. We're going to go where we need to. We'll, we'll, some, we'll hire someone to handle all that bullshit. And uh, let's live life a little different. I believe that's called patronage, which is topical right. for this book. But it's interesting what, what that actually means. With the fatal inevitability, there has to be one of you that's going to sit there and go, you know what? He's not going to live past 60. There's no way. Right? Seriously, <laughs> think about it. Like, if suddenly your life's going to pick up and you're going to do all the things and no one will tell you to stop, I'm going to remove from you a couple things are in everybody's way typically. What if I remove from you how you look? You don't have to care anymore how you look because you're rich. And I explain that to you. There are people shallow enough that you being rich is all they need to know about. And we can handle the physical carnality of your inner desires, no problem. Okay, once that's off the table, what else is in life for you? I've taken care of their struggle of even to provide bills for yourself and deal with that. And that's a purpose. It's fulfilling. Everybody feels good paying bills. But when that's removed because of your financial freedom, now that I've done that, what are you going to do next? Well, then it would have to be finding the inevitable romance. Right? That's usually the next guiding principle for a lot of people. What if that's not on the table? Right, You know no matter what, you'll never be alone the rest of your days because of this. What's left for you? And what we're talking about is you should have this fatalistic thought process where you can see where this goes. You're still along for the ride, but you can't help it. Everything you will ever want will be fulfilled, and you can see how life is going to terminate for you. That's kind of like watching, it's like watching your best friend, right? And we'll use from a character perspective. It's like watching your best friend start going like, he does heroin for the first time and he starts talking about it. And every week you just see him get weaker, no matter what ends up happening. Sometimes an addict is an addict. And for as much as you take him in rehab, you know, the story that's more compelling for people to read about. And sadly is true is sometimes they just can't quit. And all you're doing is just watching, you know, what we call the train wreck or watching that dumpster fire burn. Hmm. There's, there's nothing you can do about this often. And why I think that's cool is because it, it's reflection. Right. Right. Another word for fatal inevitability would be reflective. Um, introspection and reflection is, is, is what this is. And you want to give that to people as they're doing it. But you're never telling them they're wrong to do what they do. In fact, you're encouraged across this to give the players almost what they want as they seek it uh, in the beginning. And that's sort of sort of how they listed. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Um, in this book, also, the structure overview, just to do it, is that each chapter of the Chronicle is broken down into individual stories. And each is composed of a number of scenes that include ready-made uh, descriptive uh, text supporting characters and instructions on guiding characters through the plot. Right, they basically hand tailor what is going to happen and what's going on and what, how you can throw it in. And what I mean by how you can throw it in, it's pretty obvious as they state it. This is what's going on. Your players will be here. And here's what they should interact with. And here's what's going on. And if they do this, do X. If they do this, there's Y. And that's that. But remember what I said. You're responsible for the reaction. right? The motives and consequences that they choose to do. So this is the part that it doesn't prepare you for. Where it seems... A through Z, that's easy enough. Remember, you might get stuck at A. Like, if you had any idea of how a podcast is structured, you would understand that you spend at least a, a week, week and a half, two weeks of doing research of what you're going to do, and you try to many different formats of notes to try to see how you want to roll this off and make it interesting. It gets harder when it's a storybook, right? That's basically, hey, guys, just read it. There you go. Why are we reviewing this? You know, basically we'll give it a thumbs up, right? That's <laughs> I, I thought of this every time when we do this. Why would you want to listen to this? And then I think about it. It's a high sale point. I get that. We're selling this book. We believe in it. That's why it's that good of a book. And we sung the praises of, uh, of uh, the previous one. They go together pretty easily. Um, that's where that is. But that structure takes a good week and a half, two weeks to get there. And then the delivery, you never feel satisfied. You almost want to record things after you record them. But that's the trick of the mind. Mm-hmm. It's a trick of the mind. There's nothing wrong with you talking about what is in this discourse and know that. But the important aspect of it is, is that if the content's quality, your review is quality. But you can have, you know, just review-worthy things to say, but then you deliver them poorly. Right? You don't trust and give the respect to what is written. And that's what we're talking about here. When you look at this and you say to yourself, okay, cool. They're saying that it's just a simple scene where a riot occurs. All right. Hey, guys, a riot breaks out because people aren't happy with the Circus Maximus. If that is all the care you give as an ST in your game, and then look at your players of what they want to do, and they go, oh, okay, we'll go back to beating up this guy in a cart because we want to focus on whatever. Because mm. players will make up their own stuff to do on the side that has nothing to do with the plot you want to do, and it's your fault as an ST when you let them do that. You want to let them do that. You want that to be your fault, but it's with the intent that this they, they can't escape what's going on. You know, so, that's I was about to say because <clears throat> apologies. But um whenever we've normally read through Chronicles, it's pretty linear, like to be honest, right? The what makes it's only two things that are gonna pop out to us. It's like the delivering of a crescendo that goes up and we're just waiting for the climax. We're like, all right, here we go. This is what we were waiting for. And most of the time it's cool, and sometimes it just ends up becoming, you know, the Albury Britain. But in this case, <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, what I caught was very different was each one of these scenes could run independent. Like it doesn't it's awesome that it exists within the fall of the Camarilla, but it's almost like you could run these scenes independently in its own time. Because I felt yeah. that the way the, the scenes were structured were all like these moral conundrums that your characters are in. So it's like, oh, let, let's go ahead and do that riot scene. And your characters could either choose to engage, run away, do whatever the case is, but it's going to stick because you'll, you'll make it way in on them. And I think this is one of the few times, you know, reading it, and maybe it's because of the, the structure of it being the Camarilla and or being surrounded by Rome, that I felt that each one of these scenarios and or scenes that players walk into felt very weighty. Like it just, you know, it's like one of the things that you always speak about, Bob, which is like never have a scene not mean anything at all. And right. I think... You definitely feel hmm. the weight. I felt the weight of every scenario, like 
even if you as the the, the player didn't care, your character will feel it because when it all comes tumbling down, you were part of it. You had something to do with all of this, and every scene should make you go, "Okay, I didn't care, or I did care." Um, and it gets to it, but that, that's that's what I personally felt. I felt like like it mattered, right? I think that's a better way of describing it. Is I felt like every scene mattered to your your character, and that feeling you you get for that it's not just the writing; it's the structure, the mm-hmm. patches of events that it gives to every chapter, um, details what's happening off camera. Now, you guys have heard me refer to this, mm-hmm. that when you plan <clears throat> for a game, you can't just bank on the characters and react to them. That is the flaw of every LARP I've ever been to, is that your storyteller gets burnt out trying to think of what to do next for the players based on what the players have done. In other words, they didn't have a concept of when the story's done. Right? A good story has a beginning, and it has an ending. And it can have several chapters, but you should always be moving to progression. You're the ST. When you show up, you're working on your plot, to see that through. Your plot doesn't have to always... It can, it can be what happens in the backdrop, right? Off-camera, if the players don't focus mm-hmm. on it, still have it conclude off-camera because it fits the pacing of what you intend. For a little example, this riot that they have in here as a sample is, is due to a cause that you create and have it. You can very easily make it that the players cause the riot to some reason to make it even more meaningful, or they happen to be feasting, and when they're done, they look out and see there's a riot in the streets. Right? But the whole point is, DJ said, there's a morality here that you want to weigh in on them, but really, it's just flavor. The riot is there to give a flavor of what what they had to deal with in that era quite a bit. Um, I believe the book goes through a painstaking effort to explain that imagine that you had no one to complain to because you're, you're a slave. You serve Rome. Mm-hmm. You're not the Senate. Therefore, the only way you can express you were angry was to riot. That was it. You want to know why people uh, decide to, and it's not even to get political. What they're highlighting is it happened in the past. Does this sound familiar to anybody? I don't know why you would burn a neighborhood down. Uh, yeah, you do. If, you're, if you feel you're not being heard, and if you feel you never are heard, and if you feel you're going to be stopped on for even saying it, you get a crowd of people who are sick of taking that shit as well, and they get they let that rage out. And when they go out there, we don't want to hurt nobody, but we will. We're going to ruin that shop. Why? One of us worked enough time in that shop and got screwed over by the same company left and right, and oh man, it's going to pay today. You know, that that's rage. They're trying to express it. You know, anything, it bubbles, right? It always comes to a head. It's never, I got mad one day, let's start a riot. No one can ever do that. It has to be a series of events that just piles up and then explodes. And that's what happens. And they say, for Romans, that was kind of a, a weekly event. And you're going to see that to some degree. For an, for an inn to have a brawl, that's kind of normal. For for an inn not to have a brawl, well, was Caesar in town? Right. <laughs> <laughs> who is here making sure it doesn't break out? That's the question. And that's what they want to convey to the characters that you're in a, what are they saying? You're in a time period where lawlessness isn't here. There is a law and an order to the chaos because you understand that the only power mm-hmm. is a Roman soldier and the Senate. That's it. And the rest of you serve. That's it. You serve or you're them. That's the only way this works all around. But guess what? Even if you serve Rome, you are a member of Rome. Anyone who's not Roman, woe unto them. And that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want to hammer home with this. And that's sort of the structure and the setup. Now, um, I'm going to turn it over to to you guys because I'm going to just ask a series of questions about characters. One to give you time on stage here, as it said. And the other one to go to, all right, 
let's finally get to this book and what we're going to be going over. You know, we already said what it's going to be in the beginning and the end, but let's look at that a little closer. Uh, we start off with the supporting cast of NPCs. What sort of talent do we got here to help us tell the story? We've got, um, well, they, they list uh, several out there, right? Uh, there's some that are like more, more like uh, lower mentors, some people that like teach you the ringers. But uh, there are several big actors that, that I at least want to uh, focus on because they're central to the plot. One of them is, uh, I, I, think, I think, our favorite, uh, Macalarius <laughs> Corbulo. We talked about him a little bit, it's referenced several times in uh, in the last podcast, actually, because he was uh, he's known for many things. One for being the first true kindred, uh, maybe not scholar, but like writer. Yes, right. His epistolaries. Yeah, he is. Um, he's also the proprietor of the Circus Maximus, the place kindred go to for entertainment because that place doesn't close down at night. That's where. Uh, that's where kindreds get to place their bets on who's going to win, right? And uh, uh, watch some of their favorites like uh, Victrix win the races again and again. Uh, but it's also important to note, uh, I I might have forgotten this until I read his character section. Macalarius literally means yes. meat merchant. That's Did what, you know do this? Do me a favor and look at his photo <laughs> and know that he knows that. Right. <laughs> know that he knows that he's called the meat merchant. You know what I mean? For for those of you who are that are listening and probably haven't popped open the, the book yet, you should totally do it. But uh, what we're referring to is this man is, uh, he radiates power. He radiates someone that is carried on a litter throughout town, right? His fingers are bedecked with rings that are now too small to be taken off unless he rips off flesh, which, I mean, you're a vampire, right? He, he might just do that anyway. Uh, but he he looks like he would be the one named the meat merchant. He, he looks but like anyway. the Baron Harkonnen's Go ahead. Uh, evil twin. Yes. He, he looks like the guy yes. who hired Littlefinger's rival in Game of Thrones. Right? <laughs> I forget that guy's name with his little Varys. That guy? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, but I forget his name too, strangely. Oh, v- Varys, Varys the Spider. Varys. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's to help you guys picture that, that actor would play this guy well. Right, but he would still he would need a Absolutely. lot of makeup because you have to pull off that slug look that the that Varys doesn't have. Uh, but this guy does. He has these these huge gaudy earrings like you would see on a like a uh, I, I just gotta say what it is, like a trashy trope of what would be a um uh, a Latina gang member. That you always see it, right? If you've played mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto or San Andreas, right? Grand Theft Auto, they're big on showcasing those 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 earrings. He wears those, right? His hair is stringy, like it's it got real long and it's kind of wild and unkempt because they don't have stylus back in the day, at least not for guys. And what he does, he wraps it up in this this hat that I know is cultural, but I couldn't begin to know what it's called. And uh, his hair kind of cascades down the side. But the best part is this smug look on his face. He's got no neck. He's so he's so chubby that uh, nope. he's just not there. But the look on his face, smiling and it's just like drooling blood. He looks so happy. <laughs> it's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the Sultan of Meat. This man, uh, Macalarius, represents a, <clears throat> a lot more than just that. He is also the. Um, they, he's got a nickname, right, that we're going to see a lot more in later books. I actually have seen several times before. They call him the Harpy. He's arguably one of the first Harpies because he, um, when they talk about the Cynics scene, he is he is Im- 
important to that because he works that crowd like no other. And that is how things move in the cynics. You win the the assembly to your side and he does that like no other by merely having him as your patron uh cynics assembly debates get significantly easier but if he's not oh he can make things much harder just by circling around the room and talking to people a sly joke here or rumor set there uh he is uh he is a um a teacher of hard knocks in a lot of different ways, if if not straight up. I like up how you enemy. put that. A teacher of hard knocks because this uh, this speaks of someone who wasn't born into money. Right, right. Well, you you mentioned before he's dressed like very gaudy, right? All this stuff. His uh, his deep dark secret is that uh, he he's got the Julii name, right? Except he wasn't born into it. He was freed into it. Macalarius was a slave. But when he was freed, he took the family's last name, Julii, which is a, a common practice back then. And he built up an empire, right? I believe uh, he, as a merchant importer expert, it, it might have actually been it meat now that I think meat. about That's it. That's why he's anyway. he's, he's the meat merchant. Right. And, uh, well, well, yeah, now, duh. Exactly, I brought it up. Exactly. It is an exotic meat. You're fine. <laughs> but I think the important part about that is to note that he, did, he wasn't always big. He didn't start off that way. The, the larger you are, the mm -hmm. more wealth that people know you have. This right. is a joke that people think. Like, what is it? It was, a, it was a fitness thing I heard a long time ago that someone in CrossFit posted on a shirt something about, if, if you're fat, it doesn't mean you're wealthy. That's a myth. And it's like, except for the historian who commented, no, that was actually true. <laughs> yeah, yes. it was. I think I think in the nineteen twenties there was like a three hundred pound club it's, or something for like Uber rich men. Yeah. But, but why, off topic. Well, it's not off topic. What it is is to understand that why they highlight it here is because they directly point out the fact that he was corrupted by how easy his life became because the rich and the rich knew who this guy was. It's not a secret who Marcellarius is or his origins. Mm -hmm. What it is, he's such a good purveyor of feeding uh, the rich and wealthy, what they want and what they look for, he, he knew how to make money. And the answer was, it's yes and. It was never no. That's how he did it. No matter what <laughs> you asked him, he could purvey, be it women, be it children, be it uh, any type of exotic flesh you needed, even if it were people, this guy knew how to get it to you. And he could do that. And he did do that. And he did it openly. And this is for the living and the damned. Both sides of the fence knew to come to him for it, and what do you do? Because only someone so successful can rise in the ranks of Rome. And that's how he goes from being a mm -hmm. slave to a freed man to Julii, is that they come for him. And that's what he points out. But you got to remember, to the Julii, that means that he's not pure. right? He's not true propinki. Right. That's how they see it. I was about to say, because... I think to me that leads to my favorite character, and this is a character that I fell in love with, not only from the art, but Tertia Julia Commodore is his exact foil. The art for her is probably the most yes. striking thing that has ever caught my eye in any first edition Vampire the Requiem and or Camera of the Book. It's this beautiful lady with locks curled, hanging across her nude body that's been splattered with blood as she holds a flute. Uh, that may or may not even contain blood, and it doesn't even matter if it does or doesn't. It's just there to be placed. But what's terrifying about it is that it's not her beast. It's literally a person in full control of their facilities engaged in it. And the scarier part about it is the fact that you're not sure whether or not it's simply because she's a vampire with low humanity or if it's just what a Roman would do. 
And that is scarier for me. And what's crazier about it is that she is Julia, and she stands for everything that the Senate stands for as well. Much like in this book, it speaks very loudly, is the Camarilla reflects Rome, the living Rome as well. So if the trend is, the Ro- if, if the emperor is Rome, and this is what's anticipated, she stands for those ideals. That is who she is and what she is. Mm-hmm. And whether or not she's a monster because of it, or what is considered monsters by today's standards, she is simply a reflection of it. Um, and that that caught me so off guard, because it's one of those things where I could take a look and see, like, wow, this is... This is what it is. And what's more beautiful about it is this, the the book goes through separate chapters as it crosses throughout time and history. But it also tells you that some of your favorite characters may not make it through. And in my eyes, as mm-hmm. much as I may want this character to live because it leaves her, her history ambiguous, it just says she doesn't appear in the future, I would like to believe that she died. For someone so beautiful and monstrous, maybe she didn't make it through. But that only goes to show you that a beautiful flower like her might not make it through the centuries for one reason or another. Maybe her decadence took the over. Who knows? I, that's just how I view it, but she she is definitely a fool to the Maseras. And between both her and Corbulo, when your players are introduced, you get to see what what draws more attention to you, right? Is it the the ambitions of Corbulo, or is it the status quo of that which Commodore uh, represents? And, and I'm not certain if she is status quo. I mean, I, I would I would say she's not in my eyes. She's somebody who definitely is a fly in the ointment quite a bit, uh, because remember, there's a line. That, that, that she flirts with continually. And I think that's what makes her so uh, so provocative of a character. It's the fact that she's a woman in this era with power. And one of the ways she obtained that power wasn't because she believed she used to be a senator's wife. And that's how right. she's used to the role. But she also has thoughts that she could have been a uh, prostitute. Right. That could have been a thing. And she doesn't, she doesn't remember which, which is which, nor does she care. This is the important part. Because when you mm-hmm. see her covered in blood, I don't want you to think that Roman women walked around slaughtering people and bathing their blood. Simply wasn't done. And we absolutely want to make that distinction. To the living, this would be an abominable monster. And maybe to us, because we're vampire players, and it's World of Darkness and all that stuff, we're just used to this sort of thing. But I take it as for the horror that it is. It would very much unnerve me that a woman of this caliber that you sat in a room with doesn't care about you unless she has a purpose for you. She's true Julii. Right In that regard, she's the epitome of what they want the Camarilla to be. That if you're Propinky, if you're of the wings, you have a place. And if you know your place, fine. But you would never be invited to a party of Commodores unless you're somebody of station or you needed to do something. And she needed you to hear it. And your reward is that you were in her presence at one of her gala events. And that's what it is. And let's not forget the power she truly has is that the, uh, the Caracalla Bats, which are like over a hundred plus in Rome, she runs them all. Mm-hmm. That's where her wealth comes from. And a lot of people can't, well, not a lot of people, I know why I said that. Um, I think people would overlook that. I only say that because the, the perspective I also have, I'm kind of cheating. Remember, I went through this chronicle before as a player. And I should say part of it. And then I turned around and ran it. And one of the most powerful characters always that rises to the top is Julia Commodore because I'll say, gamer nerd guys, they like beauty. And they fall for this chick every time. <laughs> it didn't matter how I played her. It didn't matter how violent she got. And the more I denied them, the more they were beating down the the door to come do whatever she wanted to get there. And that's and that's how it went. However, that was as an ST, where I where I and, and you encourage fantasies all the time. That's the point of storytelling. I'm not getting on, I'm not saying I'm immune, but I'm saying you get the idea. Thirsty 
is what ends up happening for a lot of people in these dark fantasies that get in your head. But you must understand, to this being, sex is so abysmal into what pleasure could be and what you would do. And to showcase that to your audience that wants to be involved with her, you have to get past the beauty. You have to understand Mm -hmm. that to her, that's the annoyance. All that she is and all you can see is the flesh. All right, let's get you... I got several top talented uh, booty boys and girls that will please you. And we got them over here behind us. <laughs> Work that out and come back to me when you've done rutted, you pig. And believe it or not, I've, I've had people do that. And they come back, ah, great, now what am I going to do? And now you owe me. And you owe me so much. Because you just went in and had sex with the help. You've no idea. Those are my slaves. <laughs> I thought you were Julii. I thought you were Legio Mortum. Doesn't that mean something to you? Where's your honor? I can't wait to tell the cynics of this. And that's all you have to say. And this character's power, you thus know. However, I played the other side of the fence. I made a point when I was a player um, to have a character who was a prostitute. I wanted to experience that. Um, I, as Bob, am guilty of playing those guys that come in and I want to be the Lancelot character. right? I want to be the guy who's super charismatic and good looking but is strong and powerful, saves the princess and all that. Until I had an idea. And the idea was this. Could I portray... What needs to be portrayed. Someone who has to survive. To do what he can as he must. And I played that character and came in. And what the ST did was. Understanding that. Wrote out that because I was a Deva. Here's this person. And I work for her. And off the bat in line. I had striking looks. And a couple other merits. But the way I played it. Was that I hated being there. And I didn't want to be there. And it was very intriguing. Because I thought I would be a man. I, sh- I should be a gladiator. I could fight. And the in the opening scene that mm-hmm. happened. They had someone from the Legio Mortum, and that was the war crow himself. Was in town with a contingent of men that were about to go off and quell a rebellion. Uh, something with Gauls or whatever the hell it was. And I didn't know what a Gaul was, because I was born into slavery in Rome. And what happened was, it was the most violent beating and feeding I've received at the hands of one of these men. Right? They used me. And I felt nothing but rage at the impotence of that scene. It was story told well. And at the end of it, I made it a point to, uh, I kept a, uh, I forget what it's called, it's a dagger that one of them left behind. And that would be the epitome of what became who I was. Because uh, what I did was I went to a bath and I slit my wrist to end my character. That's how I saw it ending. Mm. And for some reason I woke back up. And I never knew what my clan was. Like we played the next century not knowing. And this book allows you to do that. But what happened is, is Julia Commodore put me back together. Right, and I loved it because what the storyteller did was have me read her background and her story as he after he role played the scene, where she came in and told me I have a choice: I could be picked up and repaired and placed back into the empire as that soldier, so I can have the revenge I seek because it's the only thing I will take now, or I could serve her in the brothel and learn what true power is. And what I did was both. I took her up on her offer and I, I worked for Marcellarius in the side because that's that was another inroad. And this game lets you do that to set it up. But the true power of this character comes from the halls of power of manipulation, of finding the many different ways you could do that. Because I agree with DJ, she is the honey that draws all the flies. But at the same time, she's the rotten meat that is their sustenance to keep them going. For all her beauty, she is also quite terrible. And it just depends on how you use her. But she is no damsel in distress, and she certainly doesn't mm. need anybody uh, for that for that effect. I digress. I opened it. So, well, the War Crow. First character they mention in here, and I think is very interesting for, mm-hmm. for one reason. He doesn't know how he was embraced, and neither does anyone else. 
This guy was a Roman soldier went about doing what Roman soldiers do, winning. All they do is win. He's mm-hmm. that guy. And what happens is, is that he ends up getting defeat. They encounter some people they shouldn't have beat. Lays bleeding, dying on the ground. And his first memory of his death was turning his head and closing his eyes tightly to the side so the crows couldn't eat his eyeballs. He didn't care about dying. He just didn't want to eat his eyeballs. He just wanted to keep his <laughs> eyes is what it was. Yeah. But when he woke the next night and he moved himself out under from under the pile of bodies, he began eating the dead and feeding off of the dying. And so he just did what came after that. He laughed, put on the armor, and followed the Roman contingent wherever they went. And he just killed their enemies. He fed in the falling and dying. Pieced together his armor until he could learn how to appear as a trusted uh, soldier himself again. And then served in the armor or the, the, the legion proper. Going around all over the place. That's this guy. He's called the War Crow because he kind of starts a club. <laughs> right? It reads like wherever <laughs> he goes, there's people who do the same thing. And it's fellow, fellow Nosferatu. That he runs into until someone does, and it's by the way, Gangrel by description comes along and goes, "Oh man, it's pretty cool. Ah, it's uh, it's Helvidius Bassianus. Uh, hey, buddy, how's it going? It's you, the War Crow, right?" He's like, "Yeah, I like that name, the War Crow." Hey, instead of like diving under bodies and risking that nonsense, you uh, why don't you just pat the earth a couple times and give it a hug, and then wake up the next night in the middle of battle? And he's <laughs> like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, let me show you how to meld with the earth. And then time it to where when they start war the next day, you just know where that battlefield's going to be and wake <laughs> up in the middle of that battlefield. It's fucking dope. Right. What? That's his sole purpose, everybody. The war crow <laughs> is there to crow in war. That that's that's it. That's uh. But why why is it there? It's simplicity is what he does, right? Um. But the importance is they said he was battlefield embraced. He was born on the battlefield. Uh, for those fans who know what Berserk is, it's kind of an interesting thought, right? Yeah, if you remember Berserk, isn't that what the main character was born from? His mother? That's- yeah, was, was where he basically fell out of her cold womb as she laid there dying and wounded. And a soldier took him in and abused him to greatness as they wrote. Right, in that anime, that's the first thought I came that came to my head when I read Warcrow. I was like, well, I kind of get an idea of what he's like. Right? At least I can imagine. Super ultra-violent in the battlefield is home. Why would he be in this book, though, other than that legend? The answer is, um, you get to pick. It's a universal character to fill that need that will come to the table when people talk of Rome. That's conflict. War. The Legion. The Legio Mortum. That's this guy. He will be a constant uh, that they will see off and on, or at least the idea of it. He is Rome, is this character. And it's in his heart and never left. And they, they live for that. Um, that's important. Uh, because I think through it all, we can get lost in the politics of it. But there there's a simplicity in service. And he, he represents that to me. Um, that's why he's my number one out of all that. Because I'm a fan of the Legion. And uh, you'll think, gee, that's kind of simple. Thought you liked all of Rome. I do like all of Rome. But I like a little structure. I dig it. <laughs> when it, when it comes down to mm-hmm. that. Um, but... Beyond that, um, do you have another honorable mention? I know we went through our favorites here, um, but I kind of feel a fourth one, maybe one that's not so... Yeah, uh, I certainly do. There's a character in this uh, book that uh, starts out as like a kind of mid-tier, still an important player in the Cult of Augurs, but later comes to to lead it, and that is Flaviana Gala. This, uh, I believe, uh, well, this uh, kindred uh, vampire... Uh, has, a, has a somewhat interesting story. They were uh, 
a follower of Sybil before their embrace and after their embrace. But there was a period shortly before chapter one starts where during a ritual to Sybil, their patron deity, they enter into a, a frenzy during this rite. And when they awaken, they can't believe that they've they've um, diablerized their own sire. Right. Because that's that's one of the things that happened in the rite. And uh Flaviana then takes her sire's place as the the uh, lead priestess of this cult by castrating herself and willing the change <laughs> to stay. And after that point, Flaviana Gala becomes one of the most diehard fanatics in the cult of Augers. To kind of like frame that a little bit, there's a long, uh, there's a big theme of corruption within the cult of Augers. Like, we'll give you a reading, you pay a little bit more, we'll give you the reading you're looking for. Right. And Flaviana Gala will engage in this because in their mind, if they're trying to bribe it for a certain thing, uh, lies is all they deserve. One of the ways that uh, this uh, player characters catch this person's eye is by asking for uh, an honest uh, vision, regardless of what it is, to bring before the assembly. After that, you almost win their patronage from this. Um, More than that. This uh, character is uh, will sow the seeds for the circle of the crone. They don't show up in in chapter three like a host of other of other characters, but it's not because they die. Probably right. This there's no like um, there's no protection on NPCs in this game. That book spells it out uh, at the beginning. This isn't Skyrim or Fallout. Any of these people can die from player actions. However. Uh, if they go along with it, there's a large chance this person just goes off to preserve what's left of the Cult of Argers when they're later outlawed by the Lankea. That's, uh, I had to say, I said to me, I think you, you, bravo, or brava, as it said. DJ, any thoughts about her? In terms of Flavia, no, but the one that did catch my eyes was definitely uh, Marciana Longina of Retrix, and the reason why I caught her is because she's your fair-weather Lankea member. Like, <clears throat> she's a little bit older than most kindred are usually embraced. She was a Christian in life, even was tortured. And uh, they, the sanctified were like, oh, you're a perfect candidate. Let's go ahead and embrace you. And they do. But she knows a truth that many fanatics don't, which is, number one, there's no possible way Longinus is the first vampire. So that's bullshit to begin with. Nor are some of his dark miracles what they're supposed to be. But what she knows is that's the rising tide. The Christians are going to be it. And she represents the ideal of the fact of like, well, if we're going to ride this tide, I'd better be on the winning side anyway. So she does it purely for political purposes. And I that that caught my attention because as a human, you were down, you were down with the clown. You were you were like Jesus, my savior. But as soon as you got turned over, you're like, yeah, okay, I see how this is going to turn. Uh, and that that that's that's my character that was left field. And there's several others that we're not gonna we're not gonna review every single one. Just uh, I mean, obviously, easily we already went over two than we planned, gentlemen. That's all right though. It's all right. Uh, it's, a, it's a good book, man. And then story, it's the characters are going to carry is. it a lot of the weight, uh, the cast of characters. And I also like that when you get through the uh, the, the sidebar where they're going to tell you what they're doing in the off camera, it's exciting uh, to see it there and that, you know, your players could get involved with what they have going on even. It makes it interesting. Like, who wouldn't want to travel with the war crow as he makes his name? And who, one of you might be that lucky to do that. You know, someone might serve Commodore or Marcellarius. That's it's all good stuff. But it all kicks up, as we said. This is to a point in how to push that plot forward, much like the review. Um, you get to Chapter 1, The Knights of Glory, as it's titled. Um, what we're not going to do is tell you what the story is. What I am going to do 
is tell you what good stuff is in it that you could use universally that might draw you to actually definitely getting this book to check it out. And in here, I, I will say for the arguably for the first time, um, because it is, they teach you how to run assembly of the Senate. Right? To me, this is like an intro into politics, period, to understand how one might do it. And the way they wrote it up is brilliant. Right? It gives you the details of how to do the session and how the players should and can participate. And that's that's the most important part, right? Because they can uh, they could be there because they have a need to defend themselves against the cry of a rival, or to try to earn some station, weighing in and impressing the cynics on uh, to influence a policy they're trying to pass. Because they do that. Understand that the Camarilla is not a bunch mm-hmm. of people get up there and just say these are the static laws. They're always debating some angle on a law, or some point, or some issue, or something, mm-hmm. or some privilege, and everyone of station is welcome to be there to speak, but according to the station of the wings is the order you're going to be heard. Because if you have immortality, you might not be heard tonight at all. And if this decision is to be made tonight, they're only allow those who wish to speak on it to stand, and those of station are going to go and be heard before they don't hear anymore. Kind of how it works. And they show an example of that and allow the players to participate. Because remember, the Knights of Glory is all about feeding the characters. This is about showing mm-hmm. them what the Camarilla is and getting them in the mix, getting them set up for greatness, and setting them up to gain a lot so they could lose it later and uh, in various ways. Mm-hmm. Or be set up to gain even further to sweeten the deal when that rug's pulled out from under the whole group, right? Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> part of the, what, what this deal is. Now, the other part is the Sanctified Mass. It actually details the Lankia Sanctum gathering for worship, Period. Your, your participation, you should do it. Your participation there, if you're of the lance, is to experience it for the first time. The value here is to at least read the scene to have an idea of how you might want to do it in the future. Use parts of it, understand it. If, you've not, if you're not a preacher, how do you know how to give a sermon? Right? What do you know that they got to do? We see enough movies where it's in there enough that where you probably could portray it, but what if you haven't? And you're not a vampire still on top of it. Or you're not Link's, uh, Linkia Sanctum. Uh, to add that flavor to it as well. And uh, where there are other books that have released stories and authors of uh, wax poetic and how a mass might be, yeah, here's yet another example. And a pretty clear one for that. Or more importantly, it's the first example. Let's not forget. is the founding of what they do. Uh, last but not least is the Dance of the Galil. Uh, Galil, I think. No, it was Galil. It was Galil. Um, it showcases right, yeah. a large ritual of the cult of augurs. So basically, it gives an example of how these two cults operate and what the Senex does to get along to get along. And your players, no matter who they are, because you had a session zero, because you tied in the plot, because you tied them somewhere to the cast, they're going to fit somewhere in here where one of these three events is going to make them and set them up for what they got to be about. That's the fun. Um, rolling into that, as I'm going to allow you guys to kind of chime in as needed if I missed anything, um, we got chapter two. Now, let's understand that it's not that a whole bunch of time passes, but time enough should go by. Like, when you're done with the chapter, as you're going through it, you shouldn't be like, tonight's game one, chapter one. We'll begin chapter two next time. It's not right. a, it's a chronicle, right? So there should be stuff that your players and you want to see through to the end and go. And call them subplots if you want, but you know the canon plot is the important thing of what it's rolling through. And you should, you know, serve that as you got and get through that and get through the main and then roll to chapter two as you conclude. Now, chapter two is called God's Spearman. Now, if you're thinking, oh, man, this is where the sanctified... So, yeah, it is, actually. Mm, you're you're, you're yep. quite right. 
Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's, on point. It's all about it, right? <laughs> now, um, I know Brent trying to have some... Uh, you may, actually. I won't put words in your mouth, but uh, here's what this is about, right? It's four stories that allow the characters to play through several crises that pop up uh, near the Camarilla's end, mm-hmm. right? There, it's weakening it and setting everything up in place for the final collapse of the Camarilla, which is the point of the Chronicle. However, four parts of these... The four stories here, they deal with political infighting, uh, the shift from religious persecution to outright spiritual war and what that is, and the death of a Roman emperor. It's some big, huge events that the player's going to be in, but they want you to know that whatever plot you got going on should kind of... Here's where you're arming the players with the power to change and do whatever it is they're going to change and do and to understand that they have to do something. So if chapter one was about Mm -hmm. you getting the sugar and enjoying what I gave you and privilege and everything else, chapter two, you've got to defend it. you You kind of got to hold it. Right. Chapter two is where the the cracks in the Camarilla, where you might have glimpsed them in the first chapter, this is where they really start to show. This whole chapter is set in a time of great change for the Roman Empire, and as we've already discussed, the Camarilla reflects the mortals. See, at this point, uh, Constantine, or Constantinius, I believe, has become emperor, and he's instituted Christianity as the religion of Rome, and this has sent the Camarilla into a, a head spin because they've been clamping down on the Lankea for centuries at this point. Now the the Lankea has a has a, a leg to stand on, and for the first time, they're actually recognized as their own wing during this period. But a lot of things get set in motion at this point. We already mentioned Constantinus. Well, he had a, he had a somewhat. Um, um, famous son crispus this uh he wasn't famous because of what he did as an emperor he was he was never an emperor he disappeared in the annals of history and the fall of the camarilla offers one fictitious account of what well, happened to him see so he's a very good con- give crispus go ahead due. i mean if you go so far as to say he's known for disappearing where that is was something that did happen like he didn't did, he didn't disappear he was executed he oh, was disappeared. Right? He was disappeared. <laughs> right? He was right. He was executed by his daddy. Right? Let's not forget that. That was an emperor decree. Mm-hmm. Kill his ass. And they did him in with cold poison. And I'll let you look that up yourself, but let's just say he's not father of the year for doing that shit, nor is a Christian. Just saying. And uh no. and, uh, before I turn it back over to you, why it's important to note, this is an example of the authors being just diabolical. Because they know some dumbass is mm. going to come through and review it. And that's just me pointing at myself, making the donkey noise. Uh, and he's going to go, did that happen? And I went and looked it up and went, it's worse. It, it's worse. I'll give you the short version, because this podcast is to entertainment, not just to tell you what's in the book. And the simple right. fact is, is that this dude goes off with his dad on like a family trip like anybody would do. Right, imagine it's Christmas time, but for the Roman Emperor. And he's touring somewhere, gonna end up somewhere. I think it actually was January he was heading. He they can't even point out that he actually traveled with the family, other than they end up at the same place. And when he gets there, old Crispus steps out of line somehow. Because his dad doesn't mm-hmm. just kill Crispus. Right? He has an order where Crispus has to die, and then I believe it's his his son has to die, and then it's uh his wife. His stepmom, Flausta, Flausta, whatever her name is, she's got to go, and and then someone, some, something bad happened, and he caught wind of it. There's two mm-hmm. stories that people came up with because there were two accounts after the fact, but the accounts were discounted because of who they were. 
One guy is a former, uh, is a poet, but was a, a pagan. One of the ones that Constantine persecuted, right, when he came over. Because th- remember, this is how it went. All Rome believes in pagan worship and everything else, and they have their own gods. Then God became everything, and suddenly they were persecuted. Like that, the roles were reversed. And it was night and day. And that's that's what happened. He didn't earn friends for doing that. But, ah, uh, and the modern Christians say that he, Constantine was the guiding light. Here's the thing. Anybody that would execute his own freaking son, can we just say, I hope there's a special place in hell for you. I want to say mm-hmm. that. Understand he's the emperor. There are many things he could have done. He could have imprisoned his son in self-exile and put him somewhere on an island. Famously, many emperors have done that to wives they want to get rid of and out of the way so they can marry whoever they like. Because the Senate frowned upon divorce. Right? Interesting how they do that. And it's Rome. Remember, hypocrisy was them. Uh, now you have a son, and he's in line. He's well-favored. This is the truth. The Senate loved him. The people loved Crispus. The Senate loved Crispus. The soldiers loved Crispus. He was more popular than Constantine on coming up is what the problem was. Everything was coming up Crispus. The problem is Crispus was due in his golden period, and his dad sat the throne, and the favor that the Constantine was losing was because of the favor Crispus was gaining. Instead of the emperor looking at it as a chance to say, oh, well, at least it's in the family. My son's going to do well for himself when I'm gone. The worry and greed of being in power is there. And now people say, and I'm going to say it because the author said himself, the author said, and I, the, the guy who made this political point said, I'm biased because I'm, I'm Catholic. And so Constantine mm-hmm. is, a, is a good guy. He did a lot of good works based on what he did. And I say, he's also a human being. He could be a guy who does good works and a piece of shit at the same time, right? It's possible. And and this is, just, you know, because we're not beings of one side or the other. There's a lot to make us up. And we'll spare that lecture. But why it's interesting, they bring that into Requiem. They bring that into the story. That here it is. That here's Crispus. But instead of them saying that Crispus was, uh, oh, yeah, the nefarious second thing that he could have done was there are others who believe he, he made a pass on his stepmom. Yeah. And, she, and she reciprocated. Mm-hmm. That's why she had to go. Interesting. And she got the, what is it, the hot water steam bath suicide? That's where they st- they steamed it so hot to kill her, and she stayed there willingly? Because it was, it was that or, you know, feed you the lions or whatever they're going to do. And, and that's what it is. I'm, uh, I was appalled, but then I sat here and said, it's for the first time the alternative was him becoming a vampire or somebody wanted him to be a vampire. It didn't bother me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. It's right. It's like, you mean I get to live forever? I have to drink blood, all this stuff, but I don't have to die in horrible agony? But I think yeah. what, what also I'll makes take this it. good to have uh, the introduction of Crispus is because this is also the time, in this second chapter, where the Strix take a lot more mm-hmm. presence because the Strix know exactly who Crispus is and or. And this is like, you know, the best part about ever having a villain, much like any type of Lovecraftian horror, is you never know its intent, nor do you have to. All you need to know as a storyteller, or even if you leak it to your players, is the Strix know the importance of Crispus to them. And Crispus has got to go from a Strix perspective. And when you start introducing an inevitable doom, like a Michael Myers type that knows exactly what its target is, doesn't care about the other vampires, it knows exactly what it wants, that's the beginning of the end. It's it's the, do- the, the death knell of sorts. And it gets worse in Chapter 3, but now starting to introduce the Strix and what it will also mean to your population within Rome, um, and since Crispus also may be Rome, the death of Crispus, the death of Rome. I, uh, my man, Thassius Hostinius, to me, is the winner of the chapter. The most important person in all of chapter two. 
is the is the sanctified member mm-hmm. who waits for the cynics to form up to finally have his time to stand forward and go, the Camarilla's dying. It's dead. Get Peace used out. to it. Right? And, and, first time he ever addressed right? the assembly. Just, first time. You're and all it steps dead. To the side. It's a debate. <laughs> and it steps to the side and go, who would like to challenge it? Anyone like to stand up? And then everyone sits there. They're reeling. From the, think about it, you're you're the Julii sitting up here to Senex, and here comes this guy. Where is he from again? Oh, that sanctified cult of who cares? Yeah, okay. What happens is you're all dead. Stands to the side, and the Julii are like, "Isn't someone going to tell him he's wrong? Who can?" And then the hubris, right, yeah. or the hypocrisy as well. You, they're they literally talk about how everybody knows. Well, shit, we kind of knew it. Well, we all kind of knew. You ever? <laughs> This is a secret from Commodore and her right. decadent parties to Marcellari. First off, let's not take away of what Marcellari's did in his book either. I want this immortalized in a pod, and I know there's time. I'm going to make time for this. Did you not get equally, like, revolted? To, have you been in this? Have you ever been bullied, either one of you, socially bullied? Yep. Brennan say no. You goddamn liar. <laughs> Okay. I don't really remember. Uh, I'll say yes, because I went you to public school. You might have school. been to public sure school. That's where I had point. it done to me. I'm assuming there was a level of effort. But generations matter, man. You're a young dude. You may, They hopefully got that out. Uh, but it's a bullshit thing. And this one we're talking about is that Marcellarius has a party where he invites the sanctified out. And this sanctified cat who's there, and Marcellarius invited him to be funny. He wanted right. him there for the entertainment, for the explosivity of it. The harpy was doing his work. And as this guy's there... He calls Marcellarius, if I'm correct, it was a uh, a repulsive beast, is what he refers to Marcellarius as. And Marcellarius just laughs. He laughs and laughs. And he decides that for tonight only at this party, you're the emperor. And crowns the sanctified emperor and tells him to go around and pass judgment on all my guests. It's going to be great. And he gets everybody involved. And, and it's <laughs> like a conga line, right? All the cool in crowd people are going around. It's like, hey, man, look, it's the emperor. What about me? What have I done? And this guy's trying to be... I felt he definitely was persecuted, right? He's trying to be just. And for a point of it, he had to know that he was being mocked a bit, but at the same time, maybe he thought honesty would work. And he talks to a mm-hmm. few people and, you know, you could you could feel that they wrote him to be this guy to go, I, I don't want to judge you. Like, but this, but he's deplorable. Look what he's doing. Look at where you're at. Look what's going on. And then he finally gives in. There's enough people to just, no, 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 have fun. Just get in a roll. Just do what you're supposed to. You're here, man, to have fun. Just try to get along. Stop being such a wet blanket. And then he goes with it. And he's like, okay, you're a dude who clearly you're you're a bad person. Like, oh, I'm a bad person. Oh, so what's my punishment? What's my punishment? Uh, you have to bathe that guy. <laughs> All right, let me get the rags on. Gets naked and goes off in a corner to do his hijinks with whoever. Right? And that's, and that's kind of what they do. Mm. Well, he goes through this party and this guy kind of opens up where he kind of feels like, well, they don't get that he's a beast, but at least I said it. They know where I stand. And I guess all things considered, that's as good as it can get. It's not that bad. Then he walks outside. The party's over and he and he gets uh-huh. outside and they beat the ever-loving shit out of him is what happens. That conga line of happy, shining people in front of everybody's laughing, having a good time. Marcellarius winks at him. Oh, you are an entertaining person. But then when he leaves, he gets the beating unheard of this side of the Tiber River, right? It's just a, a throwdown beatdown. And I sat there and said to myself, um, analogy aside, like I think everybody's been bullied to that degree where someone strung you along and made you feel like you belonged only to humiliate you later on and let you know that it was false. 
that stinging feeling, that kind of mm. mean girls movie I hear so much about type of thing. I expect that to be in there. And it made you hate Marcellarius just to read that part. Like, oh, you piece of sh-, you know? And that's where it is. Now, why it's important is because here's this head of the Lankia Sanctum to walk in and just be like, you're dead. Now let's debate it. And when you read about the debate of what they do it, how dare you say that, but they have nothing to say. And the only way the Senex Mm -hmm. has any hope of winning this debate is if the players get involved. It's superiorly player motivated because these monsters have no way to decry what he said. It to me it was beautifully written for that very reason right. to get that going. Now, you gotta ask yourself why. Why would he stand up and do it? This is very simple. When Constantine becomes the Emperor, you must understand the will of the Emperor, the will of Rome. Rome is the Emperor and the Emperor is Rome. Here we get. That doesn't change. That means the Emperor by day is everything by night. Right? And that's, that's how it always will be. Mm-hmm. And because of that, when suddenly Rome goes Christian, the sanctified said there's no purpose for the Camarilla now. Even the emperor rejects what you are. That's his exactly. argument. And to what DJ said, if you remember Commodore, that comment that, uh, what was it? It was about her being the epitome of what the, what the emperor was. Right, of what the Camarilla was. Yeah, at that point, the emperor previous, when it flips and changes, mm-hmm. that's... That's the, that's the problem they all know and understand. And because of that, they got a hard time arguing it. And when you see that happening and they step up so boldly to do it, this is where it turns into a, a war. Really good war. It's a great opener. I, I would like to see this film is what I'm saying. <clears throat> but I digress. I digress as you two look at me a bit. Um, rolling through here, though, the illustrious chilled is what that part is called. And it definitely culminates in... Uh, mm-hmm. Here's where a lot of death starts happening, too. The next one, The Saint of yes. Horse, as uh, it's called. Yeah, this is... Um, we we touched on it a little bit earlier, right? When the when the Christians come into power, they're no, they forget that they were the ones that were persecuted. They are now the persecutors. See, at this point in time, uh, the book frames it as that there are there are two factions of of Christians that are that are vying for for supremacy. Right? There's the Nicene, Nicene, Nikea. Tennessee uh, it, is what it is. I, I'm, it's Tennessee is what it is. Uh, and then there's the uh, the Arians. Crispus is uh, w- was noted in the previous. Um, plot as being a uh, as being a, an ardent Aryan differing from his father <clears throat> and in the the saint of whores plot there is a brothel that converts all of them convert to being uh, followers of um, of Aryan I believe and this uh, this sends a powerful message for for the Aryans the other side doesn't like this at all because now they're thinking well, this is this shows them right. This is a a monument to them, something they can rally around. But this hurts our cause. What's important about this is that uh, it's not just purely a um, it's not just purely a a mortal thing. There is some supernatural 
things going in there. But I'll I'll leave that gem for for the readers to to pursue. What ends up happening with this is that this con now convent is in the player's territory, and there's all this not just human uh, interest in it. There's also vampiric interest in it. There's another uh, heretical cult that wants to guide them or torment them or do something with them. What it culminates in is these these nuns now are being dragged out and burned at the stake, and the players have a, a moral choice here. They can allow this to happen, allow the mortals to do what they do, or they can save these these people from death, these these um, ardent believers. And it the this is a singularly important one because at the very end of it, if they do choose to save them, the nuns run in fear at these monsters that display these supernatural powers to save them. For the first time in these these characters are brought to to face with oh they they see us as like absolute monsters regardless of what uh previous centuries had seen us. Right? That is the that moment when I read that, I was like, this is this is that uh flipping moment, right? Where the the Camarilla is gone. This is where Lankayan um and the other covenants methodology really starts to spring from is that there is a complete change in human uh, uh, belief. Hey folks, DJ here. I just want to take some time to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliations by Flyles Games. This soon-to-launch game is brought to you by the same team that's bringing you Vampire the Masquerade chapters. And they just released a trailer to go along with it. We at 25 invite you to check it out at Werewolf the Apocalypse dash retaliation.com to catch a peek at the trailer and be updated of when it'll appear on kickstarter which seems to be early 2022 the game promises to have everything that made chapters endearing to us the fans including scenarios investigations beautiful miniatures and more with that thanks for your time now back to the show so that was chapter two uh to get <laughs> a little bit in there appreciate it brennan thank you for that insightful news delivery for the weather up there uh so i'll uh, oh. over to dj um dj my man um, in yes. chapter three, talk about the fall here. What what can we expect in, a, in an overview of this chapter, right? Remember, we want to get away from kind of right. going through detail blow by blow. But of what's course. the point we should be delivering in this chapter? The point is, remember that riot that we had in chapter one or chapter two where we start saying to ourselves, oh, that's interesting. The Romans were used to riots and they were like, okay, what happens every now and then? But as it starts becoming more frequent, they're like, that's oh, the sixth one this week, huh? Yeah, that's it. And by the time it gets to this... Everyone, if I had to give a feeling about it, it's the exact same thing you would do if you were down on resources. If there's no toilet paper, let's be real, like this is a more common one, right? When there's no toilet paper going around and everyone's fighting at Walmart just to get some toilet paper, things are not fucked up. This is one of those situations where things have just gotten fucked up. Barbarians are completely at the gate. Everyone's abandoned everything. No one gives a shit about the Camarilla anymore. The Senex has no power at all. The only law is martial law. And this is when we were talking about that war crow. This is where his Leogio Mortum takes the most power because this is the only thing keeping any type of mm. order at all. To also add on to it, the Strix that we've spoken about that we've not really brought too much to the fore, even from the first book, come into more play here because they were always the death knell. And this is where they cash in on that gold regarding the Julii. This is the end of the Julii as well. The book tells you like... This scene, if anything at all, has the most impact, if only because there is no escaping it. And you're going to have people going through the five, six, seven stages of grief as they're trying to either save their character <laughs> or what they're going... Because they have to come to the acceptance mm. of it. The Julii are going to decimate, are going to be decimated by the Strix, and you can't tell who the Strix are. Paranoia's at an all-time high. 
Um, and like I was mentioning, I, I, I take this chapter the same way I would when you start seeing society just fall apart. When you'll, And the thing is, you know. You'll know, and it was outlined before in Chapter 2, when the Lankea told them that the, the camera is dead. Here you finally get to see it in play. Um, and it's impactful that way. That's that's the best way I could describe it. I don't want to ruin it for folks, but if I was to encapsulate the whole book because we're running short on time, think about this. Imagine you're a family that's waking up and you don't know that the meteor is about to hit, but you just had the perfect breakfast with your family. And as this day starts going by, you're like, huh, sky's turning a little bit dark, but it's only like two in the afternoon. And then the meteor hits. That's the best way to, that I would take this story, right? Because you start off at the beginning of Rome where everything's all nice and hunky-dory. And then it just progressively, you know, it's one beautiful day, for lack of a better term. It is, man. It's uh, this. This is really the excitement, the culmination of the chronicle, where it's going to be at its most violent, and uh, that's that's the point, mm. right? The Strix are, are doing what they're doing. It's their war with the Julii. Um, you have the barbarians at the gate, literally, who are coming in to tear apart the city at a point. Um, the remember I said once it goes uh, Christian, they're now persecuting any pagan that's there. So your cult of Argers is man, they're screwed, and that's what's going on. They're contending with that. Uh, the Caracalla orgies fall out of uh, commonplace because guess what? We're Christian now. So that's really frowned upon. We don't need to be having that. Nope, I didn't say prostitution's gone. Just let's 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 ex on the ombre mm. with the orgies, all right? Can we go to a bathhouse and just wash ourselves, please? That's all we're here to do. Then you move on. It doesn't make much money, though. Made a lot more money when I could be from some brothel, right? And that's the uh, that's sort of the thing. This is a changing of the guard and a massive change of the ways and culture of who's here. And then the barbarians come in to smash everybody. That's what it's about. Doing what it said. This chapter says it's the end and the players have to figure out what their fate is. Where are they going to go? You go down with the Camarilla with the ship. You have the band that plays as the ship sinks. Or is there an aftermath? Mm. To that end of the aftermath, it is possible. And they give you several different outs. And in that regard... um, Appendix 1 talks about uh, just pre-genic characters. I just wanted to mention that. That if you want to get this book and didn't have an idea mm. of what players should be there, they've created characters for you to read and get an idea of what you might put there. They're not mandatory. They're there if you can't think of what type of roles would be here. And a good session zero, you guys can look at them and see if somebody wants to pick them. They'd be perfect for the Chronicle itself. Just want to make the soft mention of that. However, um, there is Appendix 2, which talks about the uh, slouching towards Byzantium is what it's called. And this is where they can go to, well, another part of the Roman Empire. So Rome itself fell, but there exists in the Constantinople or Byzantium, depending on how you want to talk about it. Still considered part of the, uh, the empire, though not Rome. Uh, it's, uh, and it never will be. They do have a, uh, a sanctified bishop uh, that leads, but they very much say how your players handle the story up to that point through all those years in Rome. Your players should be quite powerful at this point. It's entirely possible mm-hmm. they played their cards right. They walk in here, and that city in Byzantium stakes the sanctified bishop and drops them at the feet of the players to decide how they want to rule. And that's that. There will never be another Camarilla, though. I right? was about to say, that's exactly how I felt, because to be honest, even though it gives you the setting for it, when the players should actually be here, you should understand this pales in comparison to Rome. This pales in comparison to the heyday. This is literally just here to show you that this is crystal light. Right? This is <laughs> open the pack. This is literally crystal light. Mm. This is your sweet and low. It will never be raw cane sugar. That but it's there for that reason and it has such an impact. I think that's why it was in the book. 
I, I enjoyed to read this section just to say that it shows you there's life that plays on, and they, they enjoyed writing it, clearly. To have Appendix 1, 2, and 3 as it bang, keeps going, shows the life of this book was the fun that they thought of it. Right, because you flee to Byzantium to tell that story to keep going on and on, and there's still fallout from what's going on. There's still sides that are angry and hatred-filled. People hate Romans. Uh, and folks that are coming here and you're Roman, oh man, there's unfinished business. Or is there? And they give a story there hmm. for that too. Um, Appendix 3 is about the modern. And that's what I definitely didn't want to leave without talking about. How do you play Rome tonight? You need Appendix 3 to be there. The idea here, and we mentioned this before, so we don't need to talk about that a whole lot, is to talk about um, the diaries, right? Your players might have a diary or two where they're going to write about what their characters did through your Rome Chronicle. I recommend doing it. I actually did this as a player. It went very well. You write down what you think happened. The storyteller doctors what actually happened. I'll repeat that. Mm -hmm. You're going to write down in the Chronicle as you guys play it, my character did this. My name is Decimus Severus Maximus. I waylaid the armies and recovered the eagle from the Ninth Legion and did all that. And all at the behest of my cruel and wicked sire, uh, Julia Commodore and blah, blah, blah. Right, and I leave it there. Storyteller grabs it and goes, all right, it's not what happened. Let's make this interesting. I was Julia Commodore. That's what I did. And in the, by the time it gets to the modern, I have reinvented myself and forgot who I was. And there's a chill that I used and chewed up and threw out and did that. And my guilt made me want to be them as an escape from who I actually am. And it's a cheesy, long example, threaded version of doing it. And how would that work out? There's ways. And we simply could say that that's, that's what happened. And that realization of Rollbait could have done that. It's not what we did with me, though. Let's just say that uh, I... Uh, well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I thought I was uh, just this Roman soldier who was Deva. And that's, and that's what it is. She grabbed me as a prostitute. The way the storyteller did it was I wasn't just a prostitute. I was Commodore's son. And it, it couldn't happen. It was it was uh, if, uh, that was a that was one fragment in my dream journal I couldn't reconcile with, and I told nobody, not even the players. I tell you now because it was a haunting detail. I felt twisted to know that I had been pining after my mother and had relations with her repeatedly, and she, and she was fine with it. Right? That's what it felt like because Bob is a modern guy, and that's not my character. But to know that there's no way I role played it, but then to read, I did. Right when this was discovered, which is kind of how the dream journal works, something should happen where you get the truth, and uh, when you uh, get the reality, it's facing and reconciling what it is, because then you get a true idea of what it's like to role play that elder through time. What you thought happened, mm -hmm. here's what did happen, and how'd you find out what did happen, and can you trust it? That was the fun. Uh, the other thing is, Commodore was possessed by a Strix. That's why she did what she did to me. I knew her only as this cruel person. She was already dead. By the time mm -hmm. I ran into her, already possessed. and uh, But that Strix still haunted me. And it was interesting because I didn't know what a Strix was. And I don't care about dumb owl spirit anyway. So I don't care about your birds. So <laughs> that's how it went. But this is talking about the modern, and that's just one way. They give a technique where they say you can do it in a one-shot. You know, it's like 1,500 plus years or whatever you want to do where you can just go ahead and one, run kind of a one-and-done type game that you could set up where uh, you bring the band back together to go over the memories of their life back in Rome and to then resume the campaign from where you have it in your own chronicle in the modern. Sort of like, a, was it Memoriam, I believe it's called? Um, V5 has a version of Memoriam where people can play through a flashback of a right. memory that took place in the past and then kind of 
events are what they are, and then come back to the future when it comes up. Right? That's sort of how you do it. A little complicated, but if you like that complication, please enjoy. Um, what are some of the other ways you guys enjoy out of here that they give you? Or did you think of yourself? On my particular end, as I was mentioning, um, now that we're actually at the end of the book, this all ties back to the prologue, which is exactly what we were talking about before. I, I liked the broken memories of doing things. I like the fact that... It We'll get. I, I I don't want to ruin it, but all I will say is next time we have our Requiem podcast, it's going to tie together even a little bit more because there are some spoilers there. Um, but I do <laughs> like the like I said the the fact that regardless as even as old as you are, you stick to what you know and you stick to what you believe. Whether or not Renatus in the beginning of the story actually was following what he thought he was following by leaving that vessel the way it was, I love that all of it tied together that way. So I like putting in those small little pieces that make the vampire that much more individual. Because when you play in modern times, um, I think sometimes it gets missed. And the whole point about remembering Rome is it stood for something. Every every single thing you did meant something up to and including your own honor. And that's what I took away from it the most. And, and I brought that to most of my characters that I tried to emulate in that one chronicle. And I see it more here now than I did before. I... Um... I will, I will just say that this section just gives you just a ton of ideas. Like, it'd be fun to go through all. Honestly, we can't. Um, what I told you about was pretty much from memory lost and found. Um, to, to glance at my note on it, that's because I literally have it in big notes and highlighted it, that this this is what I did use. Mm. Um, this is where, it's just what I said. You know, this is my idea of what happened. ST gives you what did happen. And somewhere in the middle, it's how you found out. And uh, a lot of it is to people come seeking you out. Like out of nowhere, they remember you through time or whatever, and finally get it get up the courage to come and talk to you about something you did in the past, and uh, sort of sort of as you were my abuser, let's kind of get closure, and that's a, it was an interesting way. The Camerilla Invictus is mentioned here too. Um, let's remember the Invictus wouldn't exist without the Camerilla. It's actually true, but they are a watered down, stepchild beaten, uh, brain damaged version of what the Camerilla once was. And after playing through this, you definitely get to see that once you read the Invictus book as well. And uh, they're close, but not quite. And, um, and although, in a way, I kind of feel the Invictus is how to be modern Julii. Right? Dead but not forgotten, I'd say. And that's that's what you have here. And finally, you have uh, scene flow charts and scene cards, which I think are mainstays. This is stuff to help you mm -hmm. um, visually see what is supposed to happen as it's supposed to happen. And... Uh, this is from Knights and Glory on down. Also, I recommend that this is how you as a storyteller really should build your games and participate in some form or fashion, go through this to understand what pacing looks like, what scenes for your game look like, how easy it can be. What am I talking about? Let's take, for instance, their, their first chapter, right? What you do is you take a outline, any outline will do, you know, power up your old PowerPoint or whatever, make a slide, title it. They titled it Knights of Glory. And on here they said, it's got 11 to 15 scenes on it. We're going to throw that all down there. And uh, here's the deal. This is going to be mental-based, physical-based, but mostly social-based. And they lie that out, right? What I mean by that is, it's a mental, physical, or social way to get through the scene. And they assign an overall XP level of 10 that you can obtain through here based on what you do. Each scene is going to have an XP amount that a player can obtain. All the players will. And how they get through it is based on what stat or what choice and path they do attribute-wise. This sounds complex. It's not when you see it. It feels like a board game. You look at it and you're like, okay, it's the Orgy of Caracalas. It says here that uh, 
Yeah, you can kind of be mental. That's not what it's about. And physical definitely doesn't have a place there. So it's social graces and almost Elysium caliber play. But it's all about social navigation. This is all about the rubbing the elbows and doing the deed and get, get along to get along. But, you know, hey, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So, but if it's an orgy at Caracalla, it's unexpected to participate. There will be some humping going on. Right? <laughs> There's You're involved. You're going to be doing some of that. And that's that's what you're there to do if you happen to be there. What if you're not involved? Well, don't worry. They talk about a night at the races, which goes on at the same time. You're at the orgy, or you're at the races, or you start at the orgy, and then you go to the races after. However it ends up, it's supposed to lead to walking to Mediolanum, right? Where they're traveling there, people are patroned by whoever. You get the idea. And that's what it is, but it's all to the big backdrop of what the chapter's about. And you have this navigational plot. Now, why do I say do it this way for all your games? You two especially. Your STs and my guy going, I preach about this all the time. It helps you mentally stay on an outline track. So planning for game isn't a chore every time you do it. Mm-hmm. If I know we did the scene, Orgy of Caracalas, I could put a check mark in it and I already the XP tallied. And I already took my notes after game. Here's what they did. Nobody gave a damn about a night at the races, but there's still an outcome. And I have to determine what that is. So the hour before the next game, I power up the old PC. I look at where I left out and I go, oh yeah, Night of the Races. They chose to ignore the events, but this is what happened. That will matter when they go to Media Lounge. And so now that's where we open. The players wake up, they do their thing. But by the way, the players have no idea you're looking at a scene flowchart. You're all hearing it now. You're going to play in a game I have. You're going to wonder if I do this. And the answer is, eh, of course they do it. Of course they do it. I do it all the time. You know why? Um, I hear this said to me often. How do you make it look so easy? How, how come when you do it, it seems like you're just, ah, oh, nobody can keep up with you. What's going on? It's because none of you do the tips I'm talking about. You know, and the, the pros gave it to me. I got the idea from this book, right? I used to do a big old storyboard and take jotted notes. I want this to happen. Tonight I'm doing three scenes. These are my three scenes. And then the players did this stuff. And then I would use those two to combine together and say, here's my new night. That got tiring. When I plan everything I want to do scene-wise, suddenly I let the players do what they want with the scenes I intended. My story's still there, but some of it happens off camera. Some of it happens in front of them, but it's all going to matter and come to a head. Watch. It always works out that way. That's how you do it. And that's the importance of the end of that book. And that is the fall of the Camarilla, folks. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I know we didn't get as detailed as some of you want, but uh, I've heard this said. I wish you guys would go through and just tell us everything in the book and blah, blah, blah. Me too. This is a good plug for to tell you that we have a mm. Patreon where your ideas as our patron can be heard thoroughly. And of course, support the show. Hear those ideas. You might see that come up on a special program segment for you guys, depending on how many of you see it. Your voice is power and your support makes that happen. However, for free, it's a review. And a lengthy one at that. Uh, thank you, Brennan. Thank you, DJ. I do appreciate you both. Obviously, I know the, these two books were, oof, they, they were monsters to go through. But a labor of love, I know it was for me. I know you guys like it too. Am I right about that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mic cues. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what do we have next? I'm lining up, just let everybody know. Uh, we have Lords of the Damned <laughs> Ventru. Lords of the Damn Venture. We finally get to learn who controlled them, some bitch. All right. It's the squid billets. Now, all right. Hey, thank you folks for listening. This is long. It's already long enough. I'll talk to everybody next time. Thank you. Take it easy, folks. See ya.